You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Again, this is 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Be seated. Okay, now good morning. (laughs) Good to see all of you. Uh, My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you to Providence. Uh, If it is your first time, I want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. And hopefully someone's already kind of shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to accomplish here. So what a week, right? What a week. All right. We kind of all expected this. Here we are. Um, So I just want to say a couple of things, very brief things that maybe might be helpful, uh, maybe not, but uh, I'll do my best. I think for Christians, we need to focus on what we know, and we need to be humble enough to acknowledge what we don't know. Here's what we know. Uh, where we stand right now is uh, it looks as though, uh, according to what the, the votes that are tallied, if you turn on the, turn on the news, that, there, that there's a trajectory towards uh, a president-elect. It also, we know one candidate it's, uh, is trending toward that way. The other candidate has alleged a lot of voter fraud, right? So we know these things to be true. Here's what we don't know. What's going to happen in the next month? Uh, we, don't, we don't really know what in the world's going to happen uh, in the next month. And so I say what we ought to do as Christians, we should wait, we should pray, we should trust the Lord. Uh, hopefully, if you voted, then you let your voice be heard, your opinion's been heard. Uh, and now we just have to trust and ask, and, and really our prayer is that the truth would out in this situation. And my particular prayer has been what we've got is a razor-tight race that basically uh, illustrates just how, uh, like, dif- the divided opinion in our nation And my prayer has been, no matter what kind of shakes out, the goal really should be at this point that at least we all agree that uh, the truth was out with the votes so that we don't have half of the country feeling like it was a complete lie. That would be really bad. So let's pray for that together, uh, no matter how it shakes out. Having said that, I think that one really consoling thing for the Christian is no matter what happens in the next month, we know that we're going to react the exact same way. That's really consoling, isn't it? Here's what we will do. No matter what happens on Inauguration Day, we will trust the Lord. Amen? Uh, 
The Lord is king. Praise be to God that we don't have to worry about who's sitting on the throne in the heavens doing what pleases him. The Lord does that. And thanks be to God for that. Number two, we as Christians, no matter what happens on inauguration day, will commit ourselves to doing good. Amen. We commit ourselves to doing good, and we will speak the truth with gentleness and respect in every respect, all of the time, for the sake of the glory of God. And this is what we'll do. Also, we will pray without ceasing. This is what the scripture tells us. Pray without ceasing. Continue each and every day to be in prayer, asking that the will of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that his kingdom would come. And then maybe most importantly, listen to this. Uh, all of the, uh, the future of the world is not in our hands. God has given us a limited responsibility that we have right in front of us. Let's invest there. Let's invest our time in the things, the fields that God has given us to tend, let's tend them. And let's try as best as we can not to peek over in other people's fields and either become envious or think that it's our responsibility to go over there and start tending. Amen. Let's focus heavily on what God's given us to do and, and really do that with all of our might. And that is why I think this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4 is really well teed up for us because it's so practical. And it's so helpful for us because we will know no matter what, in a month, we're going to have to go back to doing what we always knew that we would do after every four years, which is living the life of a Christian to the glory of God. Okay, so before I jump into this text, here's what I would love to do. Let me pray for us. Let's pray that the Lord would take all of the anxiety, all of the turmoil, all of the things that have basically been inundating us all week long, that he would help us to have peace in our hearts, to go run to his word, that the spirit might speak to us through his word and help to to transform us, to change us, to mold us, to encourage us if we need to be encouraged, to convict us if we need to be convicted. Let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to do that with us collectively, okay? If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Lord, we confess to you, there are some things that we know and we want to stand on those things and there is much that we do not. So we humbly come with open hands now Father, we thank you that your word's been preserved for us for such a time as this, that we could go to the word of the Lord as an anchor. You have told us in your word that it's like a lamp unto our feet. It's like a light unto our path, that your word in the darkness shines. So we ask now, would you help us? Would you take away all of the, the things that have happened this last week and this last year, really? Uh, that are inundating our minds, our hearts, each and every day. Would you now bring the peace that surpasses understanding, Holy Spirit? Help us now as we approach your word to do so with humble hearts, but also with open ears, open minds, open eyes. Give us eternal eyes, God, to see as you see. Give us a transcendent perspective I do pray just as Elijah told his servant as the armies of the enemy surrounded him, his house, he prayed that, Lord, you would open the eyes of his servant so that he could see the heavenly host surrounding them. Lord, we ask that you'd give us eternal eyes to see that you have your hand over your church, that you are preserving your people and that your will will be done that you have not abandoned, that you have not forgotten, but that, Lord, today we stand confident in you. Help us, Lord. We, we love you and we trust you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
So one of the things that has become an increasingly kind of strange phenomenon uh, in our culture today is that we have uh, social media, you know, millions of people are on social media. And so today, unlike any time in history, you can be more connected and have more quote unquote friends than like ever before. And it's interesting because because of technology, you can not only be friends with them online, but you can talk to them, you can FaceTime them. Uh, like I was all the way across the world last month and I was able to FaceTime my family here. And it's just, it's incredible. Uh, the kind of relational connections that you can maintain. But one of the phenomenon is not only that, but also that in our current day and age, even though we can have tons of friends, even though we can be digitally, digitally connected to more people than ever, we've become more relationally inept than ever in real life. You know, one of those phenomenons is that now we text message one another while we're in the same house. Anybody do that? <laughs> you know, some of this is convenience-based, you know, like you're laid up one Sunday watching football, you text your wife or you text your, you know, if you text your husband, you text your kids, you, know, you mind grabbing me a drink? It's like, you're right there, you know, just, uh, I guess it eliminates yelling, so there's one positive, right? Uh, but but they, what they found is that, that some people have become more comfortable with text message conversations than almost any other conversation. And really, it's, social anxiety is not something that's new. Uh, it's just that this is kind of up to the social anxiety game, right? And, in, and what I would like to point out as an example, and I'm not going to bash on social media or you if you have like heightened social anxiety because they've really recognized that most of us have more social anxiety than we used to or than, than ever before. What I want to talk about is a specific experience that is, makes us socially anxious almost every time that it happens. And that is when you find yourself in a circumstance where your Christmas time comes or yeah, let's say Christmas time comes and you, you have to figure out as I go to an extended family member's house, do I need to get a gift for them because are they going to get me a gift? <laughs> you know, guys know what I'm talking about? So when you're thinking in your mind, you're like, how close are we? You know? And then if you have kids, it like ups the ante. So you got three kids, like they got one kid and you're like, oh man, they're going to buy like three gifts for my kids and for me. And like, and I'm going to be looked at as a schlub or reverse. It's like, they have seven kids and you have one kid and you're like, I don't really want to buy seven, but if they buy my one kid a gift, I got to buy their seven kids a gift, you know? So now you're just waiting. You're like, what's going to happen when you show up? And there's nothing more awkward and socially anxious than showing up and regretting that you didn't stop by CVS and get something because now they got you a gift and you got nothing. Anybody else? It's like, you don't even know what to do with your hands. You're just like, oh, thank you. You know, appreciate that. And deep down, you're like, why? You know, why? It really ups the ante, though, if they get you like a particularized, personalized gift, and it's really good. Anybody? It's like they did soul research on you. They're like, you know, it's something that you really wanted. Like, I saw you post this six months ago, and I saved it in the cart. You're like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, it's like it's engraved with your middle name. You haven't even told them your middle name. And, and, and you get this really amazing gift, right? And you're like, now what am I supposed to do? It's awkward. And it's hard to know how to respond. You know, you're thinking, am I going to go home? And like, you know, I got to send one. You even think about maybe making up lies. You're like, oh, man, we forgot your gift. <laughs> oh, it was supposed to be in the car. You blame your kids. Your kids are like, what? You're like, shut up. You know, we got them, remember? You know, whatever it may be. Okay, I think this is ultimately Peter's going to address this issue biblically. He's going to get into this question a little bit, which is, what do you do when you finally realize the depths through which Christ was willing to go to give to you the most massive gift you've ever been given? Like that the gospel of God's grace is not just like a thing that was offered to you and it's kind of like take it or leave it, but like you brought nothing to the table. Christ has done 
more than you could ever imagine. He, and, then, and then not only that, but it's like personalized. It's like he knows more, than, more about you than you know about yourself. It was this gift of God's grace was not only forgiveness, but it's also satisfaction. Like he's tailor made this gift to be personalized in such a way that your deepest wants, your deepest needs, and your deepest desires are all met in him. You're like, oh, good. Okay. Tim Keller actually talks about this. He was talking to one of those congregants in his church, and she pointed out that the gospel of God's pure grace given to us as a gift is one of the most, like, uh, shocking and jarring things because it means that we owe God, uh, we, we owe him something that we could never repay him back for. And that's, that means that he could require of us anything and it still wouldn't even match what he's given us. It's like, that's a little bit jarring. And when you realize this, you're like, what, what, what do I do with this? Like I brought nothing in. And then if you even go dig deeper, there's one of the reformers said it like this. You didn't bring anything to the gift of salvation or to the table, except the sin that would made it necessary. So it's like, not only did you show up with nothing, it's like you showed up with like in the negative. And Peter's going to dive into this. It's like, how do you respond to a gift like that? It's like, it's not just awkward, it's tough. How do I respond to the gift of God's grace? Like on one end, you know, paying it back is like futile. It's never going to happen. But if you don't, if you don't get out from underneath this feeling and this burden of, of, of guilty debt towards God, guilty debt towards God, like you're never going to really walk in the freedom that he's actually given to you. This is a dilemma. This is no small thing. How do you deal with it? Well, I do believe that the scriptures, and particularly Peter here, does say there's a, there's a proper way that we respond to the gift of God's grace. And it doesn't have to be this like awkward, don't know what to do with my hands. In fact, the way we respond to it my prayer this morning is it gives you a lot of hope and it gives you a lot of help. So let's start in verse number one in chapter number four and read the first three verses. Peter says this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, uh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So Peter starts by telling us we need to arm ourselves for a fight. So the question then is begged, what is it that we're armed with and what is it that we're fighting? So let's start with what we're fighting. Peter, this is really important, points out that what we're fighting is our flesh, sinful passions that are at war within us against our own soul, that we are in a battle against that. This is Romans chapter seven. Paul says in within myself, there is a war within my members. And this war is that I do the things that I wish that I did not do. And I don't do the things that I wish that I did do. And this body of death, he's saying this, this human experience that you and I are living is a constant battle and I don't know why I'm constantly inclined to do the very things I know I have no business doing. And I'm never inclined to do the very things I know I have every business doing. And Peter's saying that this battle that's waging war against our souls, we ought to arm ourselves for a fight. Now, why is this so important? I think it's really important, particularly for us right now. Note, Peter does not say that this fight that we're arming ourselves for is outside of us. He doesn't say you're fighting against the world, so arm up, you know. He says, the biggest fight that you and I will ever fight is going to be the one that happens internally. 
because the biggest paradox of your life is that when you look at yourself in the mirror, if you're a Christian in the room, you're looking at image bearer saved by the grace of God, sent by him to be a light unto the world, and yet simultaneously a sinner in need of God's grace who is broken and has proclivities to do the very thing that you know you ought not do and that you're all wrapped up in one. Like there's not two sides of you. There's not like your golden boy side and your shadow side and there's two different people, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. No, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are the same guy. It's the beauty of this novel. It's, it's, it's you. And Peter's saying that when you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning that there's this internal battle that you gotta wage war against Mr. Hyde. Because he wants to, he was waging war against you. Or as John Owen said, he's like, you got to be killing sin or it will be killing you. Like there's no third direction. So we're armed with this new mind in Christ is what Peter is saying. That it's going to be a fight. It's going to be tough. And why do I say that it's important for us to not think that the biggest fight we're ever going to fight is outside of us? Here's why. Because let's use politics since we're in it. It's much easier for you to think that the biggest fight you'll ever fight is political because that means that in one sense, you'll never have to face up against the true inner darkness that's battling against you because it's easier to just focus on the external darkness that's battling against you. So it's easier to say the policies of you fill in the blank are so evil and dark and messed up and we got to fight them so that we can have the light and not be examining the fact that human beings create policies and that darkness is festering here. This was the, you know, some of the most powerful novels that we read that were written in the 20th, uh, the 20th century were on this theme, like Lord of the Flies, William Golding, where all these little boys find themselves on an island and at the end of it, they end up fighting and creating tribes and, you know, one of them is killed. And you're like, oh my gosh, how did little boys end up fighting each other like that? Because inwardly, there's something way more dangerous than could ever be external to you. And Peter's saying, you got to wage war against this inward sinful flesh that's after you. It's so much easier to think that our biggest darkness is from the outside because then we could spend our time listening and, you know, to talk radio or watching the news and just be mad at these bad people on the outside that we never talk to or see or, you know, but if you look at yourself in the mirror and realize, you know what? I am a complete hypocrite at times. <laughs> Sometimes I say this thing and then I do this thing. Why am I this way? And then now you got some real battling to do. And let me just be honest with you. This is why Peter says it's suffering. He says you have to arm yourself with the mindset of Christ who suffered in the flesh. You know how we will suffer in the flesh when we look at ourselves in the mirror and we're honest with, our, with ourselves. It's a suffering. It's a, it's a, Jesus calls it this, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself means you're denying the flesh. You take up the instrument of torture. You take up the instrument of death and you walk towards the Golgotha knowing that there's a part of you that has to die with Jesus on the cross and that that's hard. That's difficult. That's a real battle, friends. It's way, it's way more of a real battle than we're seeing on CNN or Fox News. And it's the one that God's chosen for you and I to fight. No one else can fight it for you. That's the difficulty, isn't it? You're like Your spouse can't fight that one for you. Only you can. You can't fight that one for your kids. Only they can fight that. Now, there's a way of reading this, and maybe it's just me. I grew up in the South. My first church experience was at a, a Southern Baptist church, soon the sinner's prayer. So sometimes when I read the Bible, I read it like an old Southern Baptist, you know, and I got to be able to like sift through this. But when I read this, I can't help but, but read this like Peter sounds kind of like a grandpa that's fed up with the youngins. You guys read it like that? It may just be me, but let me tell you what I mean. You know, kind of like all them drinking parties that you're going to need to stop. You know what I mean? Doesn't it kind of sound like that? Like all, the, all, all this time that you used to spend doing all that garbage needs to be done and away with. 
And all the things that he listed, all that sensuality, you know, the drinking part is, all that sexual immorality you're involved with. You know, like it's where your grandpa says things and he, he mispronounces words that are like culturally new. You know, it's kind of what it feels like here, like them dadgum drinking parties with the hooligans down the road. And I, here's what I want to say. Don't read it like this because you're going to miss some really important insight from Peter here that I think uh, is lost on thinking that he's just listing out a bunch of sensual sins and saying, cut all that out and start doing holy things. It's not what's happening here. Let's go through what he says. He says, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, or sexual immorality, drinking parties. If you just took all of that as a category, they all are fleshly, physical, comforting, satiating sins that make us feel better in the flesh, in the life that we're facing up to. But the one that often is missed, and I think it is the category, it is the operative term here, is the next one, lawless idolatry. That's the key. Lawless idolatry. In the Old Testament, the sin of the children of Israel was idolatry. That they had broken the commands of God, yes, and they had fallen into a ton of sensual sins, but ultimately it's because they had rejected God as the Lord. And when God sends the prophets, he constantly sends them back to say, you have rejected God as the Lord. And this is why there's trouble in Israel. An example is Elijah. Elijah has this showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. There's 450 prophets of Baal. And there's only one. There's Elijah who still stands for the Lord. And Ahab shows up to Mount Carmel after Elijah had called this showdown. And he says, oh, you troubler of Israel. Ahab, the king, the evil king, says this to Elijah. You're a troubler of Israel. You're just making trouble. And Elijah's response is, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You have caused trouble for Israel because you have caused the children of Israel to serve Baal. You have caused them to turn their heart away from the living God. Now, what was the result of them turning their heart away from the living God? Well, Ahab, he had a wife. You might know her name, Jezebel. And Jezebel had led the children of Israel into a ton of, sensual, a ton of sin, sinful, sensual, and particularly sexual sins. And she had her own little uh, seances and tables at the palace where she would have her own gods that she worshiped outside of the prophets of Baal. But nonetheless, she was a major player in turning the children of Israel to worship other gods. And Elijah calls him out on it. He says, you've turned your heart away from God. And Peter says here, the time has passed for us to have all of these different pursuits because they're ultimately lawless idolatry. Now, here's what I want to do. I really want to define the law so that we can understand lawless. The law does two things. Think of it in terms of thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that, right? That's the law. So thou shalt not always restrain. They restrain us from doing something that if we were not restrained from doing it, it would end up turning to evil or destruction. You might think, why would God ever want to be restraining? That's a, and sometimes you might have heard this before. Why is God so restrictive? It's just about fun. Well, some things must be restrained because if we are ultimately given over to our passions to do whatever we feel like is right in the moment, it could actually destroy other lives and turn out really bad. Here's a basic example. This is like kindergarten morality. Thou shalt not kill. Let's all agree. That's probably solid. It doesn't mean that you didn't get angry enough at one point to want to kill someone. And you probably felt like it was right. Like, yep, they deserve it. Problem is, if you took a poll, not everybody in the room would be like, yeah, they deserve it. They'd be like, you're a little off base. I mean, maybe you're over-exaggerating. You might not want to kill them. I mean, maybe you guys have a conversation about it. It's like, no, they need to die. 
So thou shalt not kill restrains you from doing that which you would do if your passions were inflamed to the point of doing it. That's the first thing the law does. It restrains. And it restrains for good. It puts boundaries up. Like, okay, you can't just live your life with no boundaries. It's why we put fences around pools now because we don't want toddlers running off into the pool. It's not that the pool's not good. It's that it's not great for toddlers who can't swim. Restraining, can we all agree, is not entirely bad. In fact, in some ways, boundaries are essential. Okay, so that's the first thing the law does. The second thing that the law does is it directs. These are the thou shalts. So if God says, I want to restrain you from this immorality, God also says, I don't want to direct you toward morality. Here's a, here's a direction. This is for the kids. You shall honor your father and mother. All the parents are like, mm, did you hear that? Amen. Why? It's directing you toward good, godly, God-ordained authority in your life. And that authority is essential, so therefore God's directing you towards behaviors that are right and good and true. So when Peter says that lawless idolatry is the one thing that we should refrain from, what is he saying? Well, he's saying that for those of us who have been given the gift of the grace of Jesus, the time should be done for living without restraints in a relentless pursuit of satisfaction that is no longer justifiable. Christ has been slain and Christ has risen and he has presented himself to us as the all satisfying savior. Not only has he done everything that needs to be done to take away our guilt and cleanse our conscience, but he stands forth as everything we've ever needed personally, deeply needed and wanted. It's found in Christ. And so Peter says, there's no more justification for casting off all restraint and pursuing every single worldly thing for satisfaction because Christ stands before us. And so we ought to be restrained in our flesh, remember, because there's a war going on, and that war wants to send you away from Christ for satisfaction. And Peter says, these restraints, by the power of God's grace, are good. Or the law can be good in this way. It restrains us from pursuing things that ultimately destroy us. We mustn't continue on chasing something that is better, because there isn't anything better. Another way to put it is the law not only restrains, but it directs. Therefore, what Peter is saying is that the time is done for us to be directed by our passions because we ought to be directed by the spirit that will lead us to life. So don't just be directed by your flesh that leads you astray, but be directed by the spirit that leads you to life. The time is done for this, he says. Here's what I don't want you to do. Don't look at this list as exhaustive. If you just look at this list, you're like, man, I'm pretty holy. It's like hadn't attended a recent orgy or anything like that. You know, it's like, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> like, you know, like my last drinking party was like, you know, 08 at the frat house. It's okay. I'm doing okay. Right? No, no, no. Think lawless idolatry. This is important. Think of this as a category because then it starts to ask you deeper questions. Like where have we decided to cast off all of the restraints of God and cast off all of his directives in order to search for healing, hope, or refuge apart from Christ? That's a deeper question because Peter says, don't do this. Peter says, the time is over for you to cast off all restraints, to cast off all directives and to just go after all of these different various idols. He says, instead, Christ has to be sufficient for us. Christ is enough. Christ is all that we could ever want. Christ is all that we could ever need. And he's given himself to us as a gift. And therefore, the first way we honor the gift of grace is by embracing Christ and fighting our flesh. Embracing that grace of Christ and enjoying Jesus and rejecting our flesh that lies to us because your flesh will lie to you. And it's convincing. There's a story in, uh, I think it's Odysseus, and uh, Ulysses is on this boat 
This is an old uh, Greek mythology, but he's on his way to, to this land, and he, he hears about these sirens, and not sirens like ambulance sirens, but these mythological creatures, these sirens, and they sing to you. And what they do is they sing to you as you're headed for the land. And when these sirens, their, their music is so beautiful to the ears that it'll make you turn the ship. And it always turns the ships into uh, these rocks. Like, think like Titanic and the iceberg. They, they sing to you so you turn the, the boat in their direction to get closer just to hear a little bit more. And then you crash the boat. And it's basically crashed everybody who's gotten here before. And so Ulysses thinks in his mind, how am I going to combat this? Because what he hears is that there's no way for you there's no way for you to not turn the ship because it's that beautiful. It's that enticing. It's that amazing. Everyone turns the ship. You can't help it. And so the myth goes that Ulysses tells his men, strap me to the mast, tie me up. And he puts, he puts wax in all of the ears of his men so they can't hear a thing. And he says, tie me to the mast. And even if I beg you, even if I order you, even if I tell you, I'll kill you if you don't let me out, don't listen to me. And of course the story goes on that he does all of those things. He's yelling at them. He's cursing at them. He's telling them, you better let me off or when I get off of here, I kill you because the sirens are so beautiful. He hears them and he just is in torment and then he makes it to land. Why? Because he was restrained. And Peter tells us, lawless idolatry is neglecting to understand your own proclivities towards sin and think that we could just kind of strut on, strut on down into the boat, get into the boat. And when the sirens start singing, we're strong enough to say we don't like the song. No, we will turn the boat. The spirit constrains us to who? Ties us to the mass that is Christ so that we can get to shore and not ultimately destroy our own lives. This is why Paul says you can make shipwreck of your faith. How do you make shipwreck of your faith? You don't tie yourself to the mast or ask others to tie you when you're not strong enough. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, how do we honor the gift of God's grace? Well, verses four through six say this. With respect to this, they are surprised, they being the Gentiles, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they're going to give an account. They're going to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is even preached to those who are dead, that though they were judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter points out something that's obvious, but oftentimes we forget. When you pursue holiness, it will convict people and that will invariably make you their enemy. Not because you've necessarily said anything about their own lifestyles, but just because your lifestyle is an indictment on theirs. He says the first step is that people are shocked at you. Why wouldn't you want to do this? And then it quickly turns from being shocked to being angry. Why won't you? You must agree with me. <laughs> this is the sojourner and pilgrim identity that Christianity brings with it that we must embrace. When we honor the gift of God's grace, we will always refuse to capitulate to culture by doing one of two things, either redefining sin or excusing sin in our own lives particularly. And I say in our own lives particularly because it's not often that, that the Bible calls us to be the prophets to a world that doesn't believe in, in Christ, but instead that the church polices itself by particularly not excusing sin or redefining sin within us, that we still live our lives in such a way that says sin is what nailed Jesus to the cross, therefore I can't call it good, right? The prophets always rebuke the children of Israel whenever they call what is evil good and what is good evil. So what do we do? We don't do this. I want you to, I want to take notice here. Peter is saying you don't have to accuse other people of sin in order to be maligned or rejected. You don't. The very fact that you're making a personal decision not to partake in sin will cause you to be maligned and rejected. You have to understand this. 
And one of the ways that we honor God's gift of grace is by accepting this social ostracism. In our pursuit of holiness, we accept the fact that there are going to be people. I'm not saying don't put yourself into a martyr and say, the reason I don't have friends is because I'm a Christian. You know, because sometimes it's self-righteousness that makes you annoying. And then that's why people aren't your friend. I'm saying that you have to accept the fact that your decisions to pursue holiness and to be Christ-like will inevitably put you in circumstances and situations where it feels really lonely. Not saying there aren't scenarios where you can be maligned. And it's not because you're a Christian. I'm saying that there's going to be many circumstances where it's just simply because you're pursuing Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 13 through 15. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about this. Speaking of Christ, he says, Therefore, let us go to him, that being Jesus, outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but this we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The writer of Hebrews was talking about Jesus when he was crucified. He was led outside of the city to Golgotha because he was considered a a criminal. He was considered an outcast, and he was considered unclean. And therefore, he was put on display outside the city to show everyone, this is what happens to you when you're like him. And the writer of Hebrews says, to be a Christian is to say, wherever Christ is, there I will be also. I'll join him with the reproach. Not because I have to be right. Incidentally, when you're with Jesus, you're always right. But it is incidentally. The reason we join Christ is because wherever he is, there we will be also. And when you make that decision in your life to follow Jesus like that, Inevitably, you will have to embrace social ostracization. Inevitably, you'll have those moments where people will just not like you because they don't like him. Jesus told his disciples, they, they hated me first. <laughs> don't think they hate you uniquely. They hated me first. It means when you're truly united with Christ, some of the unpopular decisions that you must make will place you in the weird category or place you in the unacceptable category. And you'll know that these choices that you're making are right because you won't be making them for your own sake. Trust me, you'll, you will wish you didn't have to make them <laughs> because it's only going to make your life more difficult. You'll know you're making the right decision because your moral record is not going to shine when you make these because the, moral, the morality will be redefined to make you the bad guy. Instead, you'll know you're making the right decision because it will be simply to stand with Christ wherever he is. And that will be tough. I put down some examples here because I thought maybe it might be helpful uh, to think through, well, what do you mean, Cor? What, what might be some examples of this? Well, your parenting might in, invariably put you at odds with other parents in your kid's sports team who don't believe. And it might make you the odd one out in conversation. Like your marriage might put you at odds with your non-believing friends in their marital choices, and it might make you the odd one out at times. Your discipline tactics for your kids, your decisions for prioritizing your family's time might make you seem odd or like an outsider. At work outings, your unwillingness to jump on board with certain topics, particularly slanderous ones, might make you the outsider. When you refuse to gossip, a lot of times ire gets directed at you. You ever been in that situation? It's like you have to be the odd one to say, like, I'm not going to gossip. What are you saying? I'm a gossip. Just saying I'm not going to. Well, now, guess what? You're not liked. All of these decisions honor the gift of grace that is given to us by Jesus because they prioritize God's glory over our own comforts. But that makes them tough, doesn't it? That makes them difficult. 
We always receive anger from the world. This is what verse six and seven is all about. Because the world lives like there is no God who will judge the living and the dead, but the Christian lives like there is a God. And that's a constant reminder to the world of something that they are altogether willing to reject and forget. And therefore, they'll reject you. Okay, last one. Number three, we honor the gift of God's grace by sharing our gifts that God has given us uniquely to others. So let's read verses seven to the end. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I told the 9 a.m. I wish I lament that I didn't just take that one verse and preach a whole sermon on it. There's so much to that. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever endeavor. First, the early church seems to have a very serious outlook on the end of days. They seem to live with a sense of urgency, and that is something that ought to be admired. Oftentimes you read this and you think the end of all days is at hand. Talk about missing the boat. It's been 2,000 years. It's like, well, one, Peter's also the one who says a day into the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So there's that. But number two, I think that the sense of urgency the apostles lived with is something that we have lost. And therefore, we live as though what you see, feel, taste, and touch is the only reality, and that's just not true. See, when you think the end of all things is at hand, like the apostles did, you live with eternal eyes, transcendent eyes, so that you see the world around you and you remember it's not only what I see, but it's what's unseen that should shape how I live, because what's coming is something that no one has seen nor ear has heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for his people. This unseen, transcendent, eternal realm is real. And the apostles knew that it was real, and therefore they lived like that. You see, we don't live this way, so whenever we think someone's gossiping about me, we only think about the interpersonal squabble, and we don't think about the spiritual squabble behind the scenes. When you feel offended by a brother or a sister in your home group, you only think about the interpersonal human squabble and why you don't like them. Now you don't think about the spiritual squabble behind the scenes. When you see division, when you see hatred, when you see malice, you only see people. You don't see that there's a spiritual element, that we are both body and soul, and that there's so much more than meets the eye going on. And now Peter's going to list out things. So he started with the things that restrain you. Stop with the sensuality, the sexual immorality, right? The restraining things. Now he's going to turn. He's going to talk about the directing. Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Love above all. Be hospitable. Speak as one who speaks the oracles of God or speak the truth. Serve in everything that you do. Do it with the strength that God supplies to his glory. In other words, as each of us has received unique gifts, we should use them to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. So here's what's universal. God's grace is extended to us and we have forgiveness and cleansing from sin and we have right standing before God, a new identity that's been given to us in Christ. This is an amazing and matchless gift and I could go on and on and on. And then God in his grace has also extended unique various gifts to each of us that are according to his own purposes and they're different. And he did it 
on purpose so that there would not be one Christian who had all of the gifts. So then there'd be a Franken Christian that just was able to do all of the ministry necessary in the church. Instead, each of us are uniquely designed and gifted by God through his grace so that we would need each other and be able to operate individually and be interdependent. Not independent, not dependent, interdependent for the sake of the building up of the body. This is his design. He's giving us this grace because this accomplishes his purposes. John Piper says, how do you honor the engineer of a bridge that's built this beautiful bridge across a major body of water? How do you honor them? Well, you could give them accolades. You could give them awards. You could give them, uh, you know, all of the words. He says, but the most honoring thing you could do is to pack up your family and drive across that bridge. To use the bridge is the most honoring thing that you could do because ultimately you're putting your lives of yourself and your whole family in the hands of the engineer who built the bridge. We honor Christ's gift of grace by being strengthened by that grace and using the gifts that he's given by his grace. That's how we honor the grace of God. Another way to put it is that we could dishonor the grace of God whenever we lie, allow it to lie dormant and we don't use the gifts that he's given us. Here's some examples. God is honored when we serve each other. The grace of God is honored. God is honored when somebody who is gifted in hospitality opens up their home to someone or gives someone a wonderful gift in a timely manner. God is honored when someone who is gifted in mercy shows up at the hospital when a family member is sick and it's, you're the only person there and you pray with them and encourage them. God is honored. God is honored when someone who has the gift of discernment pulls a brother aside and speaks with clarity to their situation when it all feels cloudy to them. God is honored when a sister who has the gift of wisdom pulls aside another sister over coffee and says, you're in turmoil, but let me give you wisdom from God. Another example of this, you know, it's Orphan Sunday and not everyone will be called to foster or to adopt, but there's so many opportunities that have been given where people with unique gifts can come alongside families. My family has been the recipient of this over the last four years and in particular over the last three months. Can't tell you how many people have called us, have texted us, have prayed for us, setting up meal trains, sending us food, sending us little gifts of, of cash. I mean, anything you could think of saying I had a dream and let me share this dream with you that encouraged us at the right time. You know, giving us wisdom when we don't know what to do with uh, having now two kids and two kids that are adopted and having the sibling rivalries and giving us wisdom in those moments. Parents, you know what I mean, you know, when you don't know what the heck you're doing and then someone helps you. Someone with discernment that says, here's the decision. I want to affirm this decision that you're making. You know how difficult it was to make a decision to go to, to Kyrgyzstan whenever basically all the borders were closed and the elders came along and said, we affirm that we think this is right. You should, you should take this risk in faith. We're going to believe with you and my daughter's home because of it. The body of Christ is built up and God is honored when we use the gifts God's given us by his grace for his glory and one another's good. This is so essential. Now, the two things that I've heard, and maybe three, the most is number one, I am not gifted. Or number two, I don't know where I am gifted. Or number three, I don't have time to use those gifts. <laughs> I just want to say, first and foremost, if we were to, and maybe some of those things are, are, are things you're really wrestling with, so I'm not trying to dismiss them, but here's what I want to say. If what we did with that was say, you know what, okay, never mind, you're the exception, not the rule. <laughs> God says it in his scriptures, but he didn't put that one in there. I guess there's an appendix somewhere that we got to find for your particularized situation. None of those things should keep us from trying to dive deeper into why those three things are, you're wrestling with them. So I'll say first, you are uniquely created by God and you are a new creation. 
Therefore, the idea that God made you and saved you and has now sent you, but that you have no real purpose for the body is not only preposterous, but it's an affront to the grace of God. It's not only untrue, it's sadly mistaken. You are Christ's. He has gifted you. It does not matter who you are. And if you feel very inadequate, it, oftentimes the most inadequate feeling people are the ones that God uses the most mightily. Moses is a great example of that. He could say, he who speaks, speaks as one who has the oracles of God. You know, who could not speak Moses. <laughs> and God gifted him to be the mouthpiece. Second, not knowing where you are gifted is not sinful, but allowing that to be the reason that you lie dormant might be. So I've listed out four things. You can write these down. I'll try to give them to Brennan so maybe he can give them to our home group leaders. These are four very practical ways that you might consider through. If you don't know where you're gifted, hey, do these four things. Number one, and this is going to seem so simple, but you know, I often forget these things. Pray and ask God to reveal to you where he's gifted you. That's interesting, right? (laughs) Have you ever been up against a circumstance in your life? I don't know what to do. It's like, have you prayed and asked God for help? James says anyone who lacks wisdom, pray and God will give it to him. So if you lack understanding on where you're gifted to have pray and say, Lord, reveal to me where I'm gifted in the church. Number two, ask friends and others who know you what they think. This is a really like less used, but really helpful. I'm so glad my wife told me I can't sing. It's a real gift because if not, I would be the guy at karaoke that y'all all are annoyed by who gets up, he sings, he's off key. And then people, because they like him, they're like, good job, man. You know, come over here. And, the, and nobody ever says, dude, it really ruins the party when you sing the devil went down to Georgia. <laughs> Don't do it anymore. You know, I'm glad that someone came along and said, that's just not where you're gifted. <laughs> But also, it's good to have friends that notice things in you that you don't notice in yourself and notice your giftings. They notice, like, you know what? You always have a proclivity to be the first one who steps up whenever somebody has a baby. You're always one doing the meal change. You're always, maybe you have a gift of hospitality. Number three, ask leaders in your life to help you consider all of these things. Their leaders are in your life for a reason. Ask your home group leader, hey, and if they don't know, don't be down on them about that. Now they have their eyes open. They'll start looking to help, to have you an outside perspective. And then number four, and I just can't help but say this over and over, start serving in some way because it's better to serve left-handed than not serve at all. Start using your efforts, even if it's not your gifts just yet, because I promise that when you realize this isn't for you, it'll be obvious to you and others. So why not just jump into it and try it? Because a fear of failure, if that's hindering you from serving others in the body of Christ, that's from the enemy. Because of God's grace to us in the gospel, we should no longer be afraid anymore of failing because it's like the net's there, man. <laughs> Failure's the rule, not the exception. We're all going to be at that. And, and Honestly, the worst that could happen is a little bit of humility, which we could all probably do good for. So start serving in some way. Okay, conclude with this thought. Peter concludes, in everything you do, do it with the strength that God supplies by his grace. John Piper says it like this. The exchange of the gospel is we get the grace, God gets the glory. We get the grace, God gets the glory. We honor the gift of God's grace when we enjoy it as a gift, and then we always point back to the giver right? It's what we teach our children intrinsically from the moment that they're little. We say to them, after they've enjoyed their gift, they've been playing outside, they're all muddy. What do you say? Thanks, grandpa. The honor goes to the giver because I get to enjoy this, but but I'm not the one who provided this whole atmosphere where I get to enjoy this. So we give God the glory and we get to experience the grace and we live our lives in a way that gives God the glory and we get the grace. And so I want to challenge you. My final thought is, how are you living your life in such a way that you enjoy 
embrace and utilize the grace of God as it's powerfully working in your life so that God's getting the glory for it. But the body is built up. Amen. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Jesus, there are so many uncertainties in our culture, but there are no uncertainties with you. Your word says you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your word says that even though the flower may fail and the grass will wither, the word of the Lord remains forever. So we look to you, my God. We look to you to do three things. We ask, would you help us fight our flesh? Would you help us, Lord, to accept being ostracized at times for your glory? And would you help us, Lord, to identify and use our gifts for the good of others, to love one another earnestly above all? Help us in these things so that, Lord, you would be honored among us. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.